Welcome to episode 183 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. A couple months ago, I subscribed to the substack of Dr. Lisa Young. She's a professor of political science at the University of Calgary, and her newsletter is called What Now? It's all about Alberta politics. And not only is it delightful in that it's well-written, but it's also uh, plenty of insights. Uh, she's made me think on on more than one occasion, and I always enjoy that. Uh, my, my critics suggest it doesn't happen nearly often enough. Um, so I'm going to have, we're going to have a chat today about the mandate letters that Premier Danielle Smith recently released uh, for her new ministers of energy and environment. And they are quite telling. I can't remember the last time mandate letters for cabinet ministers generated this much discussion. So welcome to the interview, Lisa. Happy to be here. Well, I'm, I, you know, you wrote about this in your, in your last newsletter and and I wrote a column yesterday about um, uh, the 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 two uh, mandate letters. So one for Rebecca Schultz, who's the Minister of Environment. The other one for Brian Jean, who's the new Minister of, of Energy. And the and the implications for uh, environmental liabilities. And so, <laughs> you know, her R-Star proposal, her $20 billion of credits with $6 billion of foregone revenue to clean up old wells uh, has been, was controversial enough that she shelved it before the election. And it sure sounds like it's going to come back. And, you know, that that uh, Gene has kind of been tasked with finding a way to to bring this back. And maybe that's a good a good entry point into our discussion. Uh, what did what did you think? What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean that's interesting because you know there was such controversy before the election about the idea of R Star, and that was it struck me as an issue where the, the sort of populist impulse of the Alberta electorate could very much have pushed against Smith. Um, you know, the notion of taxpayers paying these, you know, big wealthy corporations to clean up the messes that they were supposed to clean up already didn't sit right. And so she withdrew from that. Um, and I had thought that the idea was more or less dead, that she wasn't going to come back to it um, if reelected. But as you say, the mandate letter does seem to suggest that, you know, it won't be called our star, but uh, we're going to see something like this. Um, so, uh, you know, and in this and in a number of other things, I think it's fair to say that um, Smith has interpreted the election win as an endorsement to go ahead with a bunch of policy uh, ideas that she might not have campaigned on. And the R star idea would be one of those. Yeah, she didn't campaign on much, did she? Exactly. She was going to cut taxes, keep them low and, you know, and, and, and sheriffs everywhere. Right. That was essentially the platform. Well, the, um, uh, the one of the, there's a letter she wrote to uh, then Energy Minister Sonia Savage in 2021, and is very instructive because what she talks about uh, in that letter is small companies, the small producers. Yeah. Excuse me, just a minute. <coughs> I'll start over again. Uh, Danielle Smith, when she was a, a, an oil and gas lobbyist for the Alberta Enterprise Group, wrote a letter to 
then Energy Minister Sonia Savage in 2021. It's very instructive because she talks only about small producers. And these are the ones that are under tremendous uh, financial stress. Many of them have gone bankrupt since 2014. In fact, the junior sector in, in the industry, which used to be, you know, have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies, has been decimated. It, it's now, I don't know how many there are, but there aren't many. And and that's, they've always been her champions. In fact, I did an interview with, you know, uh, uh, Professor uh, Keith Brownsey from Mount Royal University. We Basically, I argued that she's, you know, that's her constituents. That those are the, the the people who put her in office. They funded her campaign and and championed her, and for for policies just like this, because they're under they're under pressure from the energy transition. Nobody will give them capital anymore. You know, oil and gas is an especially on the conventional side is a is a capital hungry uh, industry, and the little guys. I, I interviewed a fellow named uh, Donnie Bobasel, who's a veteran oil and gas guy. Now he's into hydrogen. And when we he started the his his description of how his his Innova hydrogen company came about is their little management team, which had been in oil and gas for for decades, uh, couldn't get any capital. And he said that's it's true throughout the industry. Only the very select teams now, those are his words, are have access to capital. And the little guys who would I'm sure Donnie and his his team would have qualified for that. Uh, we're, you know, we're victims of that. And so you can see what's happened here is that the the small producers are basically funding kind of this, you know, Smith and, and her agenda and, and some of her cabinet ministers. Then they get in and they put in place policies that support, that, that uh, try to help out a sector in, that's in big trouble. And is have we seen this? Is there like precedent for this in in Alberta politics? Gosh, um, you know, I read you to learn about energy policy. <laughs> I'm happy to talk about the politics, but I, uh, it, I, I'm really not very well positioned to answer that, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. No. Fair yeah. enough. Uh, I suspect there has been because that's the nature of politics, right? You know, different interest groups very often will influence a political party. And then, you know, the time comes to pay back their support. Sure. So. I, I mean, there's absolutely, um, you know, instances where, you know, there's there's support offered for political party to political parties and an expectation of a policy change. Right. And you know, this is where when we talk about the regulation of money in politics, um, there's always this worry about a quid pro quo. And, you know, what we think of as being legitimate is if there is a policy response that applies across a sector, what, what we think of as entirely illegitimate um, in a democratic system is the idea that, you know, one particular player will, will get a win, that there'll be private gain that way. But certainly, you know, we can look at a lot of Alberta politics um, with some pretty clear expectations that you know money that goes into the system is and support that goes into the system is going to be rewarded with certain policy outcomes and a sense that the Alberta government is going to champion some segment of the industry or the industry writ large even without the money going in and the support we might expect the Alberta government to be 
championing the industry though, right? So I, I do think that R Star is one of the different places where this isn't simply about um, uh, you know championing the industry, but rather looking out for a segment of the sector and really shielding them from market market forces, right? Oh, that's absolutely true. And and that's a nice segue into uh, a part of the one of the mandates that uh, Brian Jean, the energy minister, was given, which is to implement the emissions reduction and energy development plan. Now, I wrote about this in a column shortly after it was introduced and said, basically, it wasn't a climate plan. It wasn't an emission reduction plan. It was an oil and gas marketing plan. And <laughs> I've got a, th a Twitter thread <clears throat> that I'll be sharing on other social media platforms that I hope to publish today. And I wanted to put some context uh, to this discussion. I mean, maybe I'll do it here as well. So if we're talking about developed nations, advanced economies, you know, so we're Canada, the US, Europe, uh, China, other Asian Pacific kind of economies, their, their basic strategy, I think that, and, and they all have different flavors on how they approach this, but the basic strategy is threefold. So first of all, you're going to adopt new energy, uh, clean energy supply. So basically it's different, you know, clean electricity. So wind and solar and battery storage and nuclear and geothermal and hydro and on and on and on. I mean, the response to the, the energy transition is essentially about switching over to electricity and some low emission fuels like, like hydrogen. So that's number one, clean energy supply. The other one is clean energy demand technology. So now we're talking about electric vehicles and heat pumps and electric industrial processes and on and on and on. And the uh, the third one is building the clean energy, the industry to manufacture clean energy technology. So the you got you know if you're going to adopt solar, you got to make the, the solar panels. If you want to wind wind uh, uh, farms, you need wind turbines and China has a, such a huge lead. I mean, that's, it was funny watching the Americans wake up during the 2020 uh, uh, presidential campaign and realize that not only were they not number one in this industry, they were probably number three behind China. China with a, a huge lead, followed by Europe, and then and then the the U.S. And that's being probably being generous to the U.S. So that's the that's the approach that um, advanced economies are taking toward both the energy transition uh, and towards climate policy. We're going to take, you know, from a climate point of view, we want to substitute clean energy for fossil fuels. And from an energy transition point of view, the technologies now are competitive and they're starting to push out fossil fuels. And so if we're going to play in this new economy that's emerging, then we have to we have to invest in those industries and, and so on. That's not what Alberta is doing. What Alberta is very, very clearly doing, and and Kenny, this was this was true under former Premier Jason Kenny, UCP Premier, but it's it's absolutely crystal clear under Danielle Smith, and that is they are simply going to decarbonize their existing oil and gas production, and then they are going to lobby the federal government uh, to provide support and infrastructure approvals to increase exports of those hydrocarbons. And there's, you know, they're tinkering around, tinkering around the edges with hydrogen, but most of that hydrogen, the industry is interested in using it to decarbonize because of federal, you know, upcoming federal emissions regulations. You know, there's very, there's almost no policy interest in expanding the uh, wind and solar resources in the, uh, in the electricity sector. You know, they're just going to let the market determine 
willy-nilly however that however that happens and there's very little interest outside of hydrogen in developing you know other clean energy technologies or industries or clusters that that sort of thing and so the the idea of a decarbonizing existing production and then b expanding exports of those hydrocarbons is just shot through all of these these two mandate letters would you agree or disagree no, absolutely. It 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 seems to me that the plan here is to keep doing exactly what we have been doing and perhaps do some more of it. <laughs> and you know, there's this notion that you can do you you can produce oil in a less carbon intensive way and you know, perhaps in fact you can, but even the timelines that are being discussed really do seem to suggest, you know, a a a deeply held belief that the world isn't changing um, and, and and that demand is going to be there and that there's going to be global acceptance for us to keep doing what our, we're doing, which, you know, I, I am no expert in this field, but it seems implausible to me. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree uh, wholeheartedly. And uh, it seems to me and I think this is a useful way to frame the, the conversation about this, is that Alberta has an incumbency dilemma. You know, it's every time there's a, a major disruption in an industry that's dominated by big players, uh, it, the incumbents have a very hard time adapting. And, and I mean, you know, Blockbuster and Eastman Kodak have, have become metaphors for this kind of this kind of issue. Buggy whip manufacturers back in the 1920s, that sort of thing. But that's what happens is that the, the incumbents don't see another emerging business model for them. And they don't think that they, or maybe they, like Eastman Kodak, Eastman Kodak actually had some of the early patents on digital technology, but it thought it had lots of time and it wanted to protect its existing markets. It's, you know, the markets for its existing products. And suddenly it just got overwhelmed by the competition. And and it seems like Alberta is, 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 is going down that same path. It's basically doubling down on the status quo. And the, the narratives that support this are things like, oh, no, you know, we, we, there, there are forecasters like OPEC and Shell, for instance, that show that oil is, demand is going to grow to 2050. You know, never mind that the IEA says it's going to peak in, in 2030. And there are plenty of other forecasters who, who say the same. They just ignore that. They they cherry pick the ideas that support their narrative, and it, it, it's so ingrained in the Alberta political culture that the industry believes it, the business community believes it, the government believes it, the politicians believe it, and it's it's just taken as 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 fact. And yeah. and as a political scientist, you know when when the political culture and the political narratives don't line up with reality. What's the likely outcome? <laughs> it's not going to end well. Um, yeah, you know, looking at this through my political science lens, um, it, it really does strike me that what we have is a situation where we've got a political culture that very much identifies with one industry. And it's not simply being an industry town or an industry province, but there's this historical narrative that this situation that we're in right now fits into. And I think it's blinding uh, us to 
uh, some of the real trade-offs that that are being faced in the conversation right now and i keep going back to you know the the studies of Western alienation, the historical accounts of how Alberta and Saskatchewan were founded unfairly within Confederation. They didn't have control of their natural resources. So it sets up this conversation of the good people of Alberta against, you know, exploitative Ottawa. And so it lets people see the situation that we're in right now as just another instance of Ottawa maliciously trying to undermine Alberta, as opposed to Ottawa trying to sort of shout through the, the fog, you know, look, there's something going on here, and you're not going to be able to keep doing what you're doing. But, you know, the sense that our prosperity lies on this, the sense that, you know, as a people, we're, we're united against Ottawa, which is, you know, yet again, out to get us, I think is really reinforcing that bubble of, of industry and government and people reassuring one another that we can just keep doing what we're doing. You know, I'm old enough to remember the, the, uh, so about mid 80s, early, you know, 83, 84, 85, when the Western Canada Concept Party, the Separatist Party, ha had a fair amount of support in Saskatchewan, Alberta. And I remember you know, I was at, at the University of Saskatchewan doing my undergrad degree, and I went to a WCC uh, event just to listen to them. And, and at that time, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't plausible. It was kind of goofy and, and and stuff. But, you know, still, you know, people, the disaffected people who were angry about something came out and supported them. It wasn't a big crowd. But the point there was that it really didn't matter. You know, like it just, it, the, you know, the fact that there was this populist separatist narrative, angry at, 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 at the federal government, angry at Ottawa, angry at the, you know, Eastern Canada for all of these historic grievances. You know, it, it was it was kind of like, you know, a bunch of old guys sitting in the back booth at Tim Hortons kvetching about all this stuff. And that's and that's as far as it went. But the same dynamic and political dynamic seems to be at play today, 40 years later. And there really are there really are serious consequences that are likely to flow from that. And one of them is and I keep saying this. I know you don't like Trudeau and I know you don't like the liberals and I know you don't like Ottawa and, and Quebec, but you know, you really need the big red checkbook. You really need, you know, the federal government is making all of these, you know, I mean, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in various pots of, of funding available that, that are related to energy in one form or another. And, and, and Alberta could be using those pots of money and using the new regulatory frameworks that the federal government is bringing to its advantage. And instead of doing that, it keeps fighting and fighting and fighting against it and digging its, its the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. What's that old saying? You know, at some point you got to stop digging and, 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 it, and it, it comes back to this thing you're talking about where it's a form of populism there's a grievance there's a sense of protecting the people right i mean this yeah. is just a, a, a classic example of, of populism you're going to protect the people from some outside threat and populism is a really really hard thing to overcome is it not absolutely and you know we've seen populism in western canada you know over time, um, populism on the left, populism on the right. 
it's interesting to look at the situation we're in right now where you've got you know populism arguably you know smith is very much a populist that's how she was able to capture the party and um you know is certainly running her government with with that sort of populist uh ethos there's a a media that has uh grown up to support this you know you've got western standard rebel news um and 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 so increasingly you know people are are hearing messages that reinforce their inclinations the narratives that they want to hear um, so all of these things, I think, make it very difficult um, to have the kinds of conversations that are hard conversations to have to imagine a, a different future. Um, so, yeah, I think the populism is is certainly troubling. And looking at the, you know, sort of regional grievance, the Western alienation, it's taken on a different uh character in some ways. If we go back to the 80s, you know, Preston Manning, it was all about the West wants in. The West wanted to capture Ottawa and fix it, make it more like uh, Western Canada, essentially. Um, you know, there was this, this deeply held belief that if you just had a triple E set it, everything would be different and better. So it was focused on fixing Canada in a sense. And now when we look at the uh, expressions of alienation, it, it's quite different. It's really very much about Alberta distancing itself from Canada. It's not necessarily separatist, but we see, you know, going back to the mandate letters, these efforts to fortify the Alberta state. Um, in the finance minister's uh, letter, you know, we, we want to explore the Alberta pension plan. We want to collect our own revenues. All of these things are the kind of state building that Quebec did back in the you know 1960s you know coming out of the quiet revolution so it's really a very different kind of western alienation than we saw 30 years ago yeah let's talk about narratives around what around that theme because I, there was a there was two sentences one in in schultz's letter and one in in gene's mandate letter uh, but i'll read the one from in schultz's that are, that are just they made me laugh I laughed out loud when I read them. And here's the one from Schultz's letter. Alberta is the most responsible energy producer and exporter on <laughs> earth. Now look, uh, we're, we're now on part three of the unethical oil uh, investigative report series. And in the one I did just completed um, uh, earlier this week uh, on conventional oil and gas environmental liabilities, it is such a disaster of epic proportions, the incompetence of the regulator, the incompetence of governments and, and the policymakers to, to come up with, uh, uh, to solve problems that have been recognized decades ago. And it puts that alone puts the lie to that, that sentence. And then, then you have things like greenhouse gas emissions, you know, which are, you know, Al Alberta all by itself with 11 or 12% of the population is like 38% of, of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions. And, and it's all oil and gas, yeah. you know, the oil sands, uh, I mean, the oil sands is, which is part three, and I'm just starting to work on it, but I've done enough work over the years to know 
what a what a uh, disaster in the make and the disaster in the revelation because this has been going on for a while. We just don't want to talk about it in Alberta, but you know the tailings ponds and and the high greenhouse gas emissions and the stuff they put in the Athabasca River and the impact on on you know indigenous communities' health that are downstream in the Athabasca River. All of that stuff you combine it with what's going on in conventional and and you know it, it I mean it is Smith delusional. But this is the narrative, and th this is the narrative that's been going on for 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 decades, and in, particularly in the past ten years since the industry really got smacked in 2014 when prices fell, you know. And is it not true that populist narratives, it's when it's when the times turn bad. That's that's when populism really blossoms, and I think that that over the past and particularly since 2019 when the UCP first formed government. You know, this stuff has just got out of hand. I mean, it's not it's not moored in reality anymore. Yes. So I have this handwritten note, something that I was reading the other day. And, and this sentence hit me so hard that I wrote it down. And it says delusions, after all, are always defensive structure structures erected to ward off deep anxiety. Right. Oh, and, yes. <laughs> And that is, you know, it, it 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 just captures what we're seeing here, I think, which is so hard to wrap your head around that, you know, at some level, people understand that the world is changing, that the environment around us is changing, that there are many more smoky days than we've had in the past, that it's hot in a way that it hasn't been in the past. We know it's happening. People won't necessarily admit it. But it creates a sense of of deep anxiety. And then, you know, how do humans deal with anxiety? You know, some confront it by dedicating themselves to understanding energy policy, you know, um, and 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 some choose to look away and perhaps to believe things that at some level they know not to be true, but they make the world feel acceptable. But you know, around this and and some of the things that we've seen coming out of COVID, which I think is you know very similar in in some ways, just that the 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 pace of change, the kinds of challenges that we're being presented with, we don't necessarily have the capacity to deal with, and so we end up indulging in delusion. Now. We we've beaten up on the uh, Smiths, uh, uh, the Smith government, and frankly, it's my favorite indoor sport these days. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, and and they they deserve all the criticism that they get. But we shouldn't we shouldn't neglect to say you know to praise them when they do some uh, some good things. And there are there are some things in these mandate letters that that deserve praise. So, for instance, in Gene's letter. Uh, working with the Alberta Energy Regulator to improve and modernize processes around the new liability management framework, which was introduced in 2020, project approvals and transfer of well sites in a timely fashion. This is an issue. You know, the, the, the new framework that was introduced in 2020 and then the inventory reduction program that came in in 2022 that mandated reclamation spending for, for wells. Uh, that's the, the best thing that's happened in this front for 40 years. You know, yeah. I mean, it is, it's still not enough. It's not anywhere close, close to enough. They're basically now, instead of, 
instead of losing ground every year on the orphan wells and on inactive wells and, and the cleaning up problem, uh, they're at least treading water. Now there's still, you know, a hundred or $130 billion worth of liabilities that have to be advanced. But this is certainly better than, than, than I've seen in the past. So they deserve credit for that. And then on the oil sand side, uh, Schultz is tasked with coordinating with the minister of, no, hang on a second, uh, working collaboratively with the federal government, which just, my, I think my head exploded when I first read that, with the federal government, First Nations and industry to develop and implement an accelerated strategy for oil sands, mine water management and tailings pond reclamation. Now, this is something that's been an issue for a long, at least 20 years, maybe 30 years, and and seems almost it um, like a like a wicked problem, like there's no solution to it. Um, so on the one hand, that looks like it's a good thing. And well, I, well there's some. I have some questions about it, but it seems like sometimes, sometimes it almost takes the the political party that is the defender of the status quo, but has political legitimacy to come in and implement policies that the NDP, for instance, from 2015 to 2019 couldn't have done. Only Nixon can go to China. Yes, exactly. Um. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think that this is a government that has the credibility with industry to do this. I, I think there was a bit of a wake up uh, call for the uh, government in the spring with the revelation of, of uh, you know, the the water tailings ponds leaking and, and being called in to the federal uh, uh, um, uh, committee meeting and so on, um, you know, being called on the carpet, essentially. And you know, if if your grand strategy is to fight with the federal government in defense of the industry, you you can then turn to the industry and say, guys, you got to clean up your act, right? I mean, it's in a sense a version of the social license that uh, Notley was talking about, you know, in a slightly different context, but it really is part of that. Um, so I do think, you know, there there certainly are some pieces here that assuming that the government moves on them effectively um, are entirely uh, appropriate. And, you know, just at a sort of a meta level, give them points for releasing the uh, mandate letters, right? We we didn't see that from Kenny. It, it gives us a sense of what's on the agenda, right? And And that's a good thing. Yeah, as I recall, um, I know this happened in Ontario with the Ford government, and I seem to recall it happening with the Kenny government, where the government actually refused to release some mandate letters. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, mandate letters haven't always been public, but um, there was sort of a move toward releasing them. Um, I think the Trudeau government sort of uh, moved back to doing that in 2015 when they were first elected at the federal level. And so then we've seen, um, you know, some governments do it, but uh, Kenny certainly didn't. Uh, I don't think Ontario, uh, Ford has in Ontario. And, you know, Smith did this uh, when she first, uh, you know, took over government, uh, became premier, and she's done it again now. And, you know, it, th this is a good thing. Now, 
we have to assume that there's the public mandate letter and then the private mandate letter that tells you, you know, what's <laughs> what's your number one priority? What are we just saying, right? Um, so we've got to be skeptical, but it certainly does, you know, and it, it gives advocacy organizations the ability to say, you know, minister, it says right here in your mandate letter that you're supposed to be doing this. How's it going, right? Yes, exactly right. And uh, there are some things here that uh, deserve some additional comment. And I was looking at Brian Jean's letter, and uh, this one uh, kind of caught my attention. Uh, Developing and improving regulatory regimes to incentivize investment in hydrogen, ammonia, helium, lithium, liquefied natural gas, not so much, small modular small modular reactors, geothermal and mineral development. And by that, they mean critical minerals for batteries. Uh, and I have to say, you know, that Alberta's slow off the mark in some of these things, though it is, if fair enough, in, in hydrogen, there's a lot of excitement and a lot, a lot going on, more so in these than in these other areas. But this is progress. And and uh, I th- I think there's enough political momentum in the province in these various areas, uh, you know, that if they can come up with effective uh, policy and regulation, uh, that might be a, a boon to development of some of these uh, resources. What did you make of um, excluding and not mentioning solar and wind in that sentence? I I. I the the problem here is is that the uh, industry uh, and the I think the political elite in Alberta is essentially uh, afraid of the decentralized nature of wind and solar, hmm. and they prefer they're much more comfortable with the the oil sands kind of you know big industrial. You know the, the 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 old utility model where you've got you know big plants and then a spoken hub kind of kind of arrangement. That kind of high you know structure, industrial structure, is something they feel very comfortable with. This idea, you know, that solar is just you know let it be free, uh, you know, will it, it, and it'll revolutionize the the industry makes them really nervous. And there's a big pushback. I mean, there's all sorts of false narratives floating around. <clears throat> Brett Wilson, <laughs> you know, you know, this kind of stuff, spreading of misinformation around this stuff, because A, it's threatening uh, on just in the fact that it, it has the potential to displace uh, uh, oil and gas consumption, but also because it's, they don't basically don't understand how those industries work. You know, they, well, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And they don't understand, you know, how markets and demand response and storage capabilities and, you know, high voltage transmission lines, but all that kind of stuff is just, they don't want to, they don't want to hear it. It's threatening to them. It's threatening to their basic worldview about, about energy. And so despite the fact that Alberta has the only open wholesale market in Canada and regularly, you know, accounts for about 75 or 80 percent of all the wind and solar, uh, you know, that's that's added every year. I think this year it's going to be two gigawatts of capacity. Last year it was of uh, was one is way more than any other province is a real disconnect because Alberta has I mean. I make the argument all the time, and this comes out of conversations that I've had with global with experts, energy experts outside of Canada, uh, who are pl- more plugged into you know the global trends. 
And and they say, look, this is going to be, we're going to have an electric economy down the road and clean elect clean electricity, reliable at a, at a reasonable cost is, is like the foundation of the, its table stakes for the 21st century economy. You have to have it. So anybody that's sitting on a big resource like that, you know, has good solar resources, good wind resources, um, most of them are investing in a big way. Even Texas, for crying out loud, you know, is a major wind producer and now is investing in solar in a huge way. And it's basically keeping ERCOT afloat in, in the midst of a huge uh, heat wave, right? And California yeah. now is now that they've got enough, you know, storage, battery storage in the system uh, has avoided blackouts like they had in, in 2021. So, you know, the, the systems, the, the power grids and the utilities and the regulators are figuring this out. And Alberta just, you know, as we said earlier, just like would prefer to stick its fingers in its ears and go, la, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to hear any of that stuff. And that is, there's a huge failure in the, in the leadership. And I'm talking about at the CEO level and the oil and gas companies, and I'm talking about at the chamber of commerce level and, you know, within the business community, the lack of critical thinking, the lack of uh, curiosity about what's going on in these new and is stunning. And I've interviewed lots of these people and I've read I'll tell you a little story. Uh, I won't mention the name. Uh, you, you might be able to figure it out. But a former uh, chief of staff of a, a, a premier, uh, the former premier, uh, emailed me after the emission reduction and energy development plan came out, and and I had written a, a very critical column about it, and it and it rambled on about you know was, I was involved in putting this plan together and. And, you know, then, you know, reference offhand references to Vaclav Smeal and Alex Epstein, the, you know, the the fossil fuel apologist, those sorts of things. And it, it was like, you know, you, you hear about drunk, drunk tweeting. Well, it was like drunk emailing. And <laughs> and my impression at the time was this, this is the intellectual horsepower that is behind the, the formulation of energy policy and climate policy in Alberta, God help Alberta. I mean, yeah. and, and it, that's just one anecdote. I mean, I could give you lots of other ones where I've interviewed people who are in the industry and, you know, they'll say things like, well, EVs are never going to catch on because if you plug in more than three of them to charge, you're going to blow up all of the infrastructure. Like utilities haven't figured this out years ago and have been, haven't been working on the problem. And there aren't technological and policies and regulatory solutions. I mean, the the it, their their knowledge of anything outside of their own industry is, as Jason Kenney font, uh, famously said about Justin Trudeau, is as deep as a finger bowl. And and I don't know what to make of that. I mean, you know, I talk to I I, I interview uh, utility CEOs, I interview academics in the United States, and the Gulf in knowledge and basic understanding of the energy transition and the all of the issues that flow from that, the gulf between what, what goes on in Alberta and what I see even in the United States, which is hardly a, a world leader in these things, is, is it's the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And and I, I I don't know if it's willful or or what, but you know, I don't know. What's what's your take on it? Are, are, are the political is the political elite of, of Alberta just willfully dumb? Um, you know, I think on one hand, there's a disconnect between 
what governments are saying that they're doing and then some of the things that are actually going on behind the scenes right and um in in uh, blue storm the the book about uh, the rise and fall of Jason Kenney, Dwayne Bratt's chapter uh, talks about energy policy and, and essentially makes that argument, right? That there's, you know, there's the public face, which sort of panders to this notion that, you know, the solar's no good because the sun doesn't always shine. Um, and then there's what's actually going on um, quietly. And it's, I mean, energy policy is a complex kind of thing, right? Regular folks don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to it. But I do worry that with um, some of the the internal politics of uh, the UCP and the version of the UCP that we've not now got in government, that there is less inclination to engage in some of these more sort of sophisticated conversations quietly in the background um, and perhaps a deeper belief in you know some of the slogans that uh, have certainly rallied the party's base and and so yeah I mean I I, I do think and and there's a there's, we talked earlier in this conversation about the the echo chamber, the bubble, um, and and I think that that has gotten worse, not better, um, with the change in leadership. Um, so I I do think that you know in a world that's changing pretty quickly, Alberta has set itself up to miss a lot of opportunities. You know, I, I interviewed Dwayne about that that chapter, uh, or at least it came up in the course of one or two interviews. And and I disagree with him on this because what he's done is he's taken a frame uh, that of that is legitimate for previous premiers like like Ralph Klein. So Ralph Ralph would beat up on you know Ottawa and, and all the time, and that was you know much like uh, the current uh, like Kenny did. And it would, but it was true that in fact behind the scenes that his his uh, Department of Energy or whatever you know they were working on policy in, in conjunction with federal government and there was a good working relationship. Oh, it was Jean Jean Chrétien at the time. That's that, and and that was true. And 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 they would wink at each other, you know, Chrétien and 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 Klein about this, you know, uh, manufactured feud that they they had. That was great. I don't think that that frame applies. It didn't apply under Kenny, and it doesn't apply under under. Uh, there was some of that. I know Wilkinson has told me that you know he, uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, Canada's uh, yeah. Minister of, of Natural Resources, effectively the Federal Energy Minister, he has told me that uh, that he had a good working relationship with Sonia Savage. But the at the end of the day, that that behind the scenes work uh, work between the two levels of government has to bear fruit. That's how you that's how you tell whether or not the the behind the scenes work is legitimate if it's if it's effective it's if it's if it's getting the getting the job done and I would say clearly under the UCP that has not happened yeah. we've just seen too many failures all all the time and and so I I just agree with with Dwayne on that yeah and and you know I certainly. <sighs> I I hear your point, um, and and it's hard to know, you know, for outsiders to know what's going on in those behind the scenes conversations. I do think, you know, if we think about this government having lost Sonia Savage, um, you know, and and some of the other more 
I'm not going to say moderate, but establishment voices in the party. Um, I, I do think one way or another that the, the situation is perhaps that much worse now, um, you know, regardless of where we started from um, and that there's that much less space for finding some way forward uh, with the federal government. And, you know, I, what deeply worries me here is that there's a strong incentive for Smith and her government to have a big fight with Ottawa to be seen to be standing up for Alberta in the face of this, you know, alleged incursion into the uh, jurisdiction over natural resources. And there is just as much of an incentive for Trudeau to uh, vilify Alberta and, you know, demonstrate to Quebec that he is fighting on behalf of climate. And uh, so th there are some incentives to uh, cooperate and to, to find some kind of a, a um, not consensus, but a, a compromise. Um, but there are a lot of incent political incentives that push us in sort of worrisome directions, I think. Well, that raises an interesting question, and and you as a political scientist would be a per, in a good position to comment on this. Um, you know, both of these mandate letters uh, instruct the ministers to work against or to guard against federal overreach, which and overreach is such an American term. You know, the states are always talking about the federal U.S. federal government's overreach, and I don't I don't recall it being part of the conversation here before. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the principle, I guess, maybe, but not that word. That, that kind of stuck out to me. But that's an aside. The, yeah. the point the point here is that I, I I have sources in Ottawa and, you know, they in the federal government, and they tell me about how frustrated the federal government is trying to deal with the Alberta, Alberta government have been since, you know, 2019. And uh, that's obviously not going to get any better. But I, I think that Trudeau has been remarkably diplomatic with both uh, with both Kenny and and Smith, and you know they take pot chat shots at them every chance they get. And and frankly, I, I read a couple of letters that Smith has written to Trudeau, and they're just laughable. I mean, they're they're poorly written. They 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 claim things that aren't true, and and are just steeped in the narrative of the day. You know, and and whereas the the federal government, you know, you can agree or disagree with whether this is a good government. But it looks like a lot of other governments we've had. You know, it's not a radical departure from the way federal, you know, can, the Canadian government ran under Harper or it ran under uh, Chrétien and Martin. And, you know, I mean, it's it's fundamentally the same uh, or very similar, whereas the the Smith and, and Kenny governments are very much a radical departure. This is not business as usual in the run in how politics are done or how governments are are managed by the by the uh, political party in power, and uh, and I think Trudeau, I don't I don't know how he doesn't roll his eyes during press conferences with with Smith, uh, but but your take on that dyna dynamic and and whether in fact you know I I don't think it's an equivalent. I don't think there's an equivalence here. I don't think the, the Trudeau is as bad as Smith. What's your take? Yeah, I, I mean, I think 
my sense of of Trudeau, you know, going all the way back to to 2015, um, and and this is you know me playing kind of amateur psychologist. So take it for what it's worth, right? Um, is that in many ways I think he's been a little bit haunted by his father's legacy. He wanted to be the Prime Minister Trudeau that didn't have a national unity crisis on his watch. And, but he also wanted for, I think, good reason to be, to, to lead a government that actually did something about climate change. And those two objectives are incompatible with one another. Um, and And so, you know, he's pushed in a fairly restrained way, I think it's fair to say, uh, on the climate question, but we're we're getting to the moment where, you know, if you're going to meet any of those greenhouse gas emissions reductions targets, you have to deal with Alberta and a lesser, to a lesser degree, Saskatchewan. And so that sort of inevitable moment of conflict is coming. And so, you know, they have been quite restrained you know I can imagine the you know the eye rolls when the letters roll in they understand the you know the internal politics that western premiers are are responding to in some ways um but I do think they've been you know reasonably restrained but the moment is coming and you know when we look at public opinion data and and, and Trudeau's in trouble politically um he needs to hold on to Quebec and starting a war with Alberta is a pretty good way to do that. And, you know, I, I mean, this may be 2025 or whenever the federal election comes, maybe Canada's first real climate change election. And it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I would agree. Um, uh, my buddy Max Fawcett over at National Observer wrote a column uh, just yesterday or the day before about how, you know, Danielle Smith wants a fight on climate. Well, Trudeau should give it to her. And, and I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, enough pussyfooting around about this. And and my approach to climate policy is, is that in decades past, climate policy was, I mean, the objective of climate policy is to switch from fossil fuels to non-emitting uh, energy sources. So the, you know, in decades past, climate policy was all about, you know, uh, starting the adoption of, of solar, starting the adoption of wind and getting the costs down so they became competitive. Well, all of that is behind us now. You know, all the key technologies, uh, the clean energy technologies are, are at the very least competitive with their fossil fuel, uh, fossil fuel equivalents. And, and so the, my focus now uh, from even when talking about climate is to focus on the energy transition. Now it's a sprint to, to, to adopt the, the clean energy industry and who's going to, who's going to be in and who's going to be out and how is all like, how, how is all that going to play out? And climate policy is essentially the accelerator uh, pedal on the bus. You know, yeah. you want, you want, you want to switch faster, press harder on the, on the climate policy. And, and so now it's come to the point where, if you don't invest in clean energy supply, clean energy demand technology, and clean energy industry, you get left behind. This is this is really, and I think the outside of Canada, it's very well understood that this is the sixth industrial revolution. And you know, it, there's a I I use a, a chart that I I quite like, and the first two were 
were uh, dominated by the uh, the Brits, uh, the British Empire, and then and then the next three uh, were dominated by the uh, the United States, but this one is dominated by China. So we rich folks here in North America can't take for granted that we're going to be the big dog in this uh, in this fight anymore, and we need to we need to be smart about this, and and we're not. I mean, other parts are, you know, the United Biden's administration clearly got it. The Trudeau government gets it. They're responding to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and, and other. But Alberta really doesn't get it. And 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 so I don't know how the the only way we're this is going to change, in my opinion, is if we take off the gloves and we literally have a bare knuckled brawl. And I don't mean just between the federal government and the Alberta government that that needs to be. You know, do you remember? Do you remember when uh, Justin Trudeau had his uh, his boxing match with uh, uh, the senator? Uh, yeah, Brazo. Brazo. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, Brazo. And yeah. and uh, you know, I mean, it's it makes for a great meme, right? To yeah. like you know, officials, you know, with their you know in a boxing ring, but but that's the kind of thing that has to happen, and but it also has to happen within Alberta. It has to the the people like and, and I, frankly, I count myself among among them now. I mean, there's this idea of being just an objective reporter, the old style journalist, you know, who just comments from the side. You know, when when there are momentous changes, momentous challenges, then everybody has to step up. And I'm in a unique position. I mean, I, you know, half of my journalism is global energy transition stuff. It's talking to experts outside of Canada. And then the other half is, well, pretty much, you know, it's federal government and Alberta government, because those are the two big players at this point in the game. And so I, I bring a unique perspective, and it's not enough to just sit on the sidelines and and you know write columns, tut tutting, and you know you have to get in into the trenches and and slug it out, because th this there there's not much more time. The window of opportunity is closing. I don't know how many more metaphors I can torture here to get the <laughs> point across, but you know time is of the essence, and if and if decisions aren't if if attitudes don't change policies don't change and basic direction of the province doesn't change alberta by 2030 is, is going to be in so in sad shape and looking back and wondering what the heck happened to it so anyway uh i'll leave you the the final word on that point yeah and i i agree with you vehemently and i think one of the things that you know we've just come out of the provincial election in alberta and you know it was hard fought it looked like a close outcome but because it was so close because the ndp was trying to find a path to power under challenging circumstances they decided to sit out the conversation about climate change and and the energy transition and you know they certainly talked about you know investing in renewables and so on but there was a moment in the debate when um danielle smith was you know pushing hard about the idea of the carbon tax and rachel notley wouldn't defend herself by saying look you know this <laughs> carbon has an impact we have to find some way of dealing with it and the carbon tax is a good market driven way of, of dealing with it and you know so she was left without anything to say but it really brought home for me how important it is for us to have a conversation in the province that's not about 
Ottawa's out to get us and it's the same thing that we've seen for a hundred years, but rather about the real trade-offs here um, that we face if we choose to continue on the path that we are sort of stubbornly ignoring this this energy transition. So, you know, my my hope for Alberta politics is that we can have the conversation. Well, let's talk just a bit about that, because I've gotten myself into trouble with the NDP in a number of occasions. In fact, I got blackballed uh, one time for a month because I, I wrote a column called Rachel got Rachel Notley's got no energy game. And 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 and, and I think that's really important because the the conversation around Notley uh, and her, her attitude towards the oil and gas industry and her former you know her policies when she was in government. It, it, it's only one of two things. Well, maybe three. One is ignore it, pretend like they did during the yeah. campaign. The, the other is to just praise it, praise her, pray, you know, and if she doesn't talk about it, there's some other excuse for her not talking about it, aside from the fact she's uncomfortable and doesn't have the courage to do it in places like Calgary. And then there's the the sort of the energy narrative, the UCP narrative, which is that she's out to kill uh, the industry and she's allied with Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh of the federal NDP to do that, blah, blah, blah. So, but the, the what really need, but we need to not be, treat Rachel Notley with kid gloves. You know, she needs to, she needs to answer the question. Why in 2019 did she not talk about her energy and climate policies? My experts, including industry people like Dave Collier, who is the head of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, said on the record repeatedly that those were good policies. And I defended them in columns because my experts said they were good policies. They were what was needed. They were well-designed. They were effective. And, and she refused to defend them in 2019 and got clobbered by Jason Kenney with his energy narrative. And then in, in 2023, again, she refuses to defend her record and she refuses to in advance an alternate view to the UCP vision of where of the where the Alberta energy industry needs to go. And, and she needs to be held accountable for that. And and on the one hand, the the media which you know the, the 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 legacy media the corporate media in alberta is captured by the oil and gas industry so it just ignores what she has to say for the most part and then any of the other sort of progressive you know voices around that uh you know just rush to her defense and make excuses for her and i don't think that's right i think she needs to be held to account for her failures on, on this and it is a failure it's not just you know poor rachel she you know, she 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 was never gonna she was never gonna make that fly in El, in Calgary. Nobody was going. You know that sort of argument. No, you didn't try. You didn't even bother. And and uh, anyway, I I'm a bit exercised about this because because she had she had an historic opportunity in 2023 to advance a different vision, and she wimped out. What uh, what's your take? Yeah, th there was a strategic choice that that she and the party made um you, you can run as you know sort of a peter lawheed figure um friend of industry not challenging just moderate and that relies on people believing that you're credible um in that role and that the, the alternative is not moderate or credible and you know they 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 tried a version of it in 2019 by vilifying Jason Kenney. They went hard on it with, with Danielle Smith. Um, and 
it, it didn't work, right? I mean, in, in some ways it worked, right? I mean, they they certainly collapsed the Alberta bar party vote and, you know, have far more MLAs than they had. They've got money. They're a credible party. We've got two-party competition. So it's something. But the question now becomes, if that strategy isn't going to work, you're never going to have a better target than Danielle Smith in, in 2023, right? Like it's it's hard, I mean, famous last words, but it's hard to imagine that the UCP will come up with something that's, you know, more out there uh, for uh, 2027. Um, so then you've got to figure out who you are and what you want to be, right? And so I think that's the conversation that's happening quietly um, in, in the party and back rooms. And they've got to figure out, do they want to try and position themselves as, you know, the, the old progressive conservatives and a friend of the oil industry, or are they going to actually talk about what's going on here and what the alternative potential future for Alberta is? And there is an alternative future. Um, and if they start talking about it now, I think that they can cultivate some support for it. They can change the conversation in the province. But, you know, it's risky. And and my sense is that the party is risk averse on that front. So it'll be really interesting to see. But I do think that the absence of that conversation, especially during elections, when people pay attention, um, has allowed the UCP to define the narrative as being about federal overreach, as you say, and, and how evil Trudeau is, as opposed to, huh, you're all in on oil and gas and you're ignoring all of the consequences and everything that's going on elsewhere in the world. Well, this is probably a good time for me to plug episode 184 of the Energy Talks podcast, which I'll be recording this afternoon with Bill Whitelaw, who is the longtime publisher of June Nickel Warren, uh, the Oil Bulletin. I mean, these are trade uh, publications that go back decades and decades. And uh, I think it's fair to say that Bill sees himself in the oil and gas camp, uh, but he's a reasonably, I think, moderate voice. And we're going to be talking about narrative. Uh, he wrote a column. We, in fact, we ran it. And I want to talk to him about that, where he he kind of seems to think that the Alberta isn't very good at narrative and uh, not very good at understanding other narrative. Well, he's right on that. But whereas he, I, there's, you know, there's a huge narrative machine uh, in Alberta, including the oil and gas industry and and the and conservative uh, politics, and and so that kind of plays into this. And I think Notley uh, was very reluctant, is always reluctant to take that machine on because she she doesn't feel comfortable. I think that she just doesn't have the expertise and the background to go toe to toe where she does on education and and health and and other other kinds of social uh, issues. So, uh, but Lisa, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for uh, lots of insights into Alberta uh, energy politics, climate politics, environment and politics and policy. And uh, we'll have you back on the podcast in the near future. Sounds good. 